welcome to A Diary is Yes Indeed, a weekly digest of my online journal. My name is Ren Powell, but the quote, A Diary is Yes Indeed, belongs to Gertrude Stein. Like Stein, I believe glimpses into one another's daily lives makes us recognize ourselves and feel less alone. And that's always a good thing. Thank you for listening. Welcome. It's episode 22, uh, June 1st, 2021. Making Sand Castles. There is such comfort in the quiet mornings. E still asleep downstairs and Leonard curled up on the rug. The space heater blowing and now and then a blackbird call puncturing its white noise. A cup of good coffee and the feel of my keyboard's small squares pushing back in a weirdly satisfying way. This cheap keyboard has only a few white letters left intact. Z, X, Q, and the Norwegian letters. This makes the act of typing feel intimate. It's an odd way to leave a mark on the world. I seem to be preoccupied with this idea the past year leaving a mark on the world. I think it's an idea worth exploring. Yesterday, while walking Leonard around the neighborhood, I was listening to a Hidden Braid podcast episode about stuff, about possessions and how we infuse them with emotion and then cling to them. He talked about how we even do it with possessions that don't actually exist. We buy and cling to virtual objects in virtual spaces. The host and the guest experts discussed why the rise of industrialization has given us the opportunity to indulge in our stuff habit. They talked about baby blankets and knickknacks, but not about our children's macaroni art on construction paper or poetry. They didn't talk about the stuff we create ourselves. I'm wondering if it isn't a very different impulse to cling to these things. I'm curious how the drive to create that is so strong in childhood, in most of us, seems to abate with the years until we hit, I don't know, my age? I haven't researched it, but what little I've incidentally read on the subject usually blames social restraints, shaming, and capitalism's focus on time is money. We get sorted out and the culture determines which of us are good enough to take an ostensibly creative space in the community. The rest of us, if we continue, apologize for our amateur efforts and keep them entirely hidden. I have no idea if this is actually true. I wonder if the impulse to create is nothing more than a way to subject the world to our will, to turn a bucket of sand into a castle like magic. There is no need to say anything by doing so. It's just a tiny bit of the world transformed by a specific human will. I matter. I can change the world, this little part of it. I've been dealing with the fact that I've become something of cliché. I always have been, I suppose, but this is a new shape. This middle age, which is past the middle of a lifespan. Craftsy space. A post-menopausal drive to regain some feeling of relevance by making things. Isn't it what they say? 
But I wonder if it isn't that at all. I've never valued myself in terms of motherhood. What if it is really more related to a need to assert our independence, as small children do? Not as compensation, but as a liberation from all the weight that was put on us in once our efforts began to be evaluated by a community in terms of worth. I'm still here, but for a limited time to come. Look how powerful I am. I can make a book. I'm unique, just like everyone else. <laughs> I matter. I can change the world. Every cat knows every box is meant to be tried on and explored, scored and chewed on like deep thoughts and scattered throughout the house. June 2nd, 2021. A story of going feral. I've been writing for a bit over a year now on the same kind of theme, or at least considering the same kind of question. What is a good life? And because for me at least, an integral part of that question is, what is an ethical life? I suppose I can split my life in two. My personal life, which is extraordinarily insular, where I can be relatively hedonistic in my pursuits, and my livelihood, which is teaching and laden with ethical responsibilities. There are days when I fantasize about not having to teach. Not to get away from the work exactly, but to spread myself out thinly over the days. To breathe easy. While the pandemic has been difficult in so many ways, it has also given me the opportunity to slow down, listen. Can I listen to the birds with the same sustained interest that I listen to a student presentation? This is a kind of work, too. What do I earn from this? My childhood was a cramped succession of dramas, of noise, of movement, a montage of cigarettes and speed, cocaine and black eyes. Drama became a kind of addiction that I struggled with through my 20s. I walked that jagged edge of violence where you never know which side someone will fall on, wounded or disappeared. And as soon as I write this down, I think, no, I'm not being fair to everyone. And still, I censor myself after censoring myself in the first place. I make excuses for other people. Maybe no one should ever tell the whole truth, at least not for the sake of entertainment or to make oneself interesting, like a spectacle at Coney Island, though people do buy tickets. When I was in high school, I went to the county fair alone and bought a ticket to see one of the freaks, assuming it would be a mirror trick of some sort, a kind of theatrical presentation. It wasn't. The, quote, freak was a person. I turned around immediately and threw up outside the tent. Nope. That would make a good story. I didn't throw up. I just wanted to. I felt a sense of shame that was too familiar. But weirdly, I felt a shared sense of shame with the person in the tent. 
I couldn't explain it then, and I can't explain it now, except to say I understand why the whales that are kept in tiny pools and mistreated at theme parks will give kisses to their trainers on cue. I don't want to choose revenge or forgiveness. I want a middle path here, too. It seems even my personal life isn't really free of ethical concerns, and my writing never will be. So for now, I write about mundane things like lapwings and chaffinches, the vibrating silence of the Hadanger Plateau where the snow still lies in July, how cold has a smell where the North Sea is untouched by the Gulf Stream, and the harbor in Stavanger can smell like watermelon. There's this to gain, being in the world and not in the past, for now. Drama is a mode of poetry and distinct from the lyric. So how do we conflate the two in the narratives we tell? June 3rd, 2021. Hoop or no hoop. This school year is coming to a rocky end. Usually the students are calculating grade point averages now, double-checking the university requirements, strategically studying for the exams that will lift their grades just that little extra to put them over the acceptance line. But the government has been canceling exams one by one and moving dates around for the final grades to be set. The trickiest thing for me is the requirement for us to hold classes and for the students to attend for weeks after the final grades have been turned in. It takes busy work to a whole new level. I feel like I'm supposed to be Julie from the love boat. Not that my students or my colleagues have a clue who that is or was. My students are 18, 19, and 20. This is insulting to all of us bureaucrats plugging in random dates and expecting us to make sense of it, to justify the students' time, to be entertaining enough to entice them to come to class, remind them that they have to or risk losing their diploma. I'm a good teacher, but a lousy cruise director. I'm counting down the days with a fair amount of anxiety. On social media, I keep reading the term post-pandemic being thrown around by some Americans. There is nothing here to really indicate that. I have a handful of students in quarantine this week. Another local school has had another small cluster of cases. It's worse in other parts of the country. But more people than ever are conforming to the requirements for face masks on trains and buses. I'm wondering if people are hoping they'll keep themselves safe enough through a summer vacation. Who knows, maybe feeling like the end of this is near makes people more willing to accept the restrictions. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself, not to speculate on the Indian variant that's made its way here into the UK. But what any of this means for the future, who knows? We have the situation today. That's all we can be sure of. This fall, I asked students to write about what they learned about themselves during this time, how they'd grown and what they did well. Maybe it is an exercise they should do again now that they are in this odd place with no clear view of the future.
As an adult, I like things to be predictable. Mm, I need them to be predictable, like fences and guideposts. I set them up like those little guardrails at the bowling alley when you can set them up to keep kids from losing their ball into the gutter and becoming demoralized. Keep trying. You are getting better. When I hit the wall this winter, I read about the difference between burnout and demoralization. I hadn't thought much before about the downside of a work ethic, though now it seems obvious the American dream on such a tiny scale. A few years ago, it came up in class, but my students thought it meant wanting to make a million dollars a game playing basketball for the NBA. I had them watch The Death of a Salesman. I'm not sure any of them really understood the concept of legacy or capitalism's required work ethic that Lohman doesn't really possess. It looks a lot like the NBA dream to them, I suppose. Hell, looks like that to me today, too. There is a smart professor on YouTube who says that the play isn't about the American dream, but I disagree. It's about Lohman's moral failure to achieve it. The play isn't a critique of the dream, it's a tragedy, which is by definition a critique of the character's morality. Clearly I miss teaching. I wonder if my rarefied understanding of the philosophical depths of the American dream and the demoralization of the working class is a footnote in the OED already. Whether the idea of doing meaningful work for a respectable everyday existence is archaic in and of itself replaced with the cult of talents and the lottery of fame. If you do the right things, work hard, you'll be rewarded, is a very naive story. Maybe all those fairy tales really are closer to the truth than the psychological realism of the 1940s. Some ditz who talks to mice and who carelessly loses a precious shoe will always wind up living in the palace. Is it possible to become demoralized if you don't value the work you do for its own significance. You can become disappointed, bitch about fate and fairness, but demoralized? And if this is so, is my claiming to be demoralized a pat on my own back with the assumption that my work was meaningful? I think this is why I have had an impulse to pull away from teaching in the sense of pulling back from emotional or psychological investments in the teaching, not in the students. I feel frustrated with all of this turn-on-a-dime planning and replanning and the practical application of the curriculum online, offline, group work, two meters apart. How can I grade what they haven't been taught it feels uncomfortably close to sticking gold stars on their forehead based on some psychic ability to know their potential, had they had a chance to learn. It feels both intensely personal and weirdly calculated and all kinds of wrong. How can it not be demoralizing for them? I've always explained to students that my teaching philosophy in the arts is that I can help them explore their talents. But in reality, I am mainly giving them room to learn to use their own creativity in a way that allows them to learn how to jump through society's hoops. What's the point of this? I don't know. It's a hoop. You're going to have to jump through a lot of them. I don't lie.
I worked hard to be a good teacher. It wasn't a career I chose. It was forced on me by the government here. I was qualified, I needed work, and I have been grateful. I embraced it, took an extra education, and really invested myself in four years of teaching and counseling education alongside my doctorate. The administration stresses how important continued education is to be a good teacher. But while I was on partial sick leave, I was replaced with a young woman with no teaching certification, and my schedule was designed around hers, and things went fine. So where is my meaningful work now that the guardrails are down and the gutters in view? It seems I keep circling back around to find myself stuck in this same me-sized existential sinkhole. So I am here, in this now space, and the future is uncertain. Today, what is meaningful? I'm going upstairs to paint. That's going to have to be enough. Hoop or no hoop, a gold star or not. And then I'll grade some papers. A sudden quiet when the air, the fan, is still. Distant voices puncturing the hum. An urban concert, indiscernible and good. June 4th, 2021. When nothing comes. I overslept, which is unusual. I had odd dreams that I'm still trying to make sense of. My mind won't settle or wake up fully. This morning there is a gull outside nearby, and at first I thought it was a dog crying. But there lies Leonard on the rug, unperturbed, and I guess he would not. Sometimes I wonder if we talk to ourselves in dreams, though if so, it seems an unnecessarily inefficient method for self-improvement. I wonder if anyone has studied whether people who don't read poetry or fiction have more literal dreams. Or maybe people who have random dreams become writers because we are actually extremely uptight and have a desperate need to impose our personal order on chaos. I can analyze my dreams, like a scarf-clad clairvoyant reading palms in a carnival tent. It all seems to fit so perfectly, the symbols, the relevance. But then I think about the human tendency to see faces and everything. It's called pareidolia. It's a thing every human being does, apparently. But it is more than seeing faces. And the tendency becomes problematic when any random visual impression is interpreted as meaningful. So where's the healthy zone on this spectrum? Rorschach tests to Jesus on toast to analyzing my dreams. This dream was harmless and surprisingly empowering when I recall it and match the small scenes with the issues in my life at the moment. I feel better about myself having, quote, worked it out. But I wonder... Did my unconscious mind work it out and present it to me to resolve like a riddle? Or did my conscious mind put random images in order that would be helpful to me in terms of getting through the day? Is the subconscious mind the I that observes me in meditation? Is it a kind of Wizard of Oz still disclosed? Is this why so many of us like our gods or our gurus to speak in riddles and to be shrouded in mystery the way our minds in, are in sleep? We want to recognize God in the way we recognize ourselves. 
not in terms of our worst selves, like Zeus, but in terms of the oracle we'd also like to think was in our deeper selves behind some curtain. Red sky at morning will bring the storm. We know this. The sun wolves tell all. That was it for this week. You've been listening to me, Ren Powell, poet and teaching artist living in the southwest of Norway. For more information about my books, mentoring services, or Mad Orphan Lit, please see my website, renpowell.com, R-E-N-P-O-W-E-L-L.com, where you can also sign up for a newsletter. I hope you will listen in again next week. Until then, take care 